Hello, I'm Rory McKiernan, author of Hitching for Hope, and you're very welcome to the Love and Courage podcast. I'm coming to you from here in Lahinch, County Clare, on the magical Wild West coast of Ireland. Great to be going out across the world to listeners in over 50 countries. And a very special welcome to new listeners. Please do check out the archives when you finish this episode. And a genuine heartfelt thank you, as always, to all you wonderful patrons and supporters who chip in to support the podcast over at loveandcourage.org. I'm delighted to welcome John Connell back to the podcast. This is his second time on the Love and Courage podcast, and it was great to catch up with him. John is a multi-award winning best-selling author, journalist, producer and farmer. He writes a weekly column for the Irish Independent newspaper and lives and works in Longford in the Irish Midlands. His newest book is called The Stream of Everything. I absolutely love that title and unsurprisingly, it's a bestseller, as were his previous two books, The Running Book and The Cow Book. John is a deep thinking man with plenty of insightful stories and reflections to share. And I'd encourage you to check out the previous episode with John from September 2020. Now, remember, if you're new to the podcast, please do subscribe for updates on your podcast app and you can get updates from me on social media. Just look me up, Rory McKiernan, or from my email newsletter, which is at loveandcourage.org. And for now, though, let's jump in. I'm sure you're keen to get started. So let's begin with this latest Love and Courage conversation with John Connell. John, you're very welcome back to the podcast. Um, I have to say there's not that many people have found their way back to the podcast just by virtue of having new people, but it's it's nice to have old friends back. So thanks for joining me. How are you keeping? I'm good, Rory. It's great to be back. Um, It's been about two years since I spoke to you, so uh, lots has happened. And uh, I suppose we've come through a a global lockdown and... uh, a pandemic seems to have moved into the background a little bit. So it's been a it's been a minute. Yeah. So th- there you go. Like, I can't remember the specific date that we talked, but I don't know, was the pandemic kicking off? Mm, interesting. There's a lot to, t- <laughs> to possibly unpack in a, in a two year window of the world. But I'm particularly keen to hear what's going on in your your personal window into world. And I think the new book, which we'll talk about shortly, is going to be a large part of that. But I'm also minded, John, from our previous conversation that you moved home from Australia. And I just have that sense of you, and I've read in some of your articles in the newspaper and so on, that perhaps all that time abroad gave you the kind of bigger eyes to look at the world, but also to look back in Ireland. So I'm wondering, I think you're back six or seven years now, and how has the journey home been for you? Have you returned with, with a new look in general? And, and have, you, have you fully settled or do you find yourself kind of looking out the window again? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I've just been writing a book and it's all about uh, that notion of we're a new person every seven years and you, you have new skin, new cells, uh, we're entirely a new being. And um, coming home, uh, you know, I, I was in Australia in 2015 and I said to my then girlfriend, now wife, that I was going to go home to Ireland to write a book and I'd be back in two months. And um, the book writing took two years. <laughs> and uh, and um, I suppose I, I had to reroute myself in Ireland. It was an enormous 
journey because I suppose I was changing myself. I'd come through my mental health difficulties and had re-engaged with life uh, in terms of, uh, you know, not drinking, taking up exercise, um, getting in touch with my faith and spirituality, meditating, all this stuff. And and then coming back to the farm and, uh, you know, I hadn't worked on the farm since I was a teenager. And then I found myself in 2016 working on the farm for lambing and calving season and ended up writing this, you know, the cow book about it. And uh, it was a really, it's been a really interesting experience because I was so long I was nearly 10 years out, out of Ireland so I had to kind of this is strange but I was a tourist in my own country you know mm. I, there was a lot of places I'd never been I'd never been to like Dingle a place I love I'd never been to Dingle I'd never climbed Croke Patrick I'd never been to Newgrange um, all these seminal things like the Hill of Ishnock I'd never been to any of these places and um, I slowly started to become a tourist in my own country and and I've read other you know the Irish Times have, have have pieces about people who come back and stuff and or who go and um everyone kind of says the same thing you have to rediscover uh your home and uh I found myself in Longford and you know over over the years now the seven years I've I've built a life we bought a house here uh last year and um it is home, but I'm still, I suppose, a global citizen. Like uh, at the start of the pandemic, I was in America documenting f- uh, farm worker uh, rights uh, in the US, and I was due to go to Brazil to look at beef farms. Uh, so I suppose Longford has been my base to see the world. And I suppose I realized as well that, um, you know, I used to think that Australia was the center of the world, but I realize now it's quite far away and uh, it's quite a distance. And um, as you get older uh, and your family get older, uh, it's nice to be closer to them. Yeah, yeah. That uh, notion of Australia being the center of the world, it's something I've picked up on over the years from being in Australia and talking to friends there. Um, I get a feeling that it it sort of might think it's bigger than it is. Now, geographically, that's obviously very true that it is an enormous place, but it's so remote and isolated and away from the world, so to speak, or at least a large part of the world. And in fact, Ireland can be very much the center of the world, at least geographically. I find, you know, we can be in New York in a few hours and we can be over in Turkey or Russia, North Africa and so many places. But what are your thoughts about Australia at the moment? I know as we record this, there's um, there's an election about to take place. But as a country, and I know it's, it's sometimes challenging when we do have loved ones and friends there, we don't want to be necessarily critical. But I suppose we have a, a critical friend eye on our own country and, and other countries. But just wondering, where does Australia sit in your heart these days? Ah, it has a very special place in my heart. I I talk to Australian friends every week. Uh, I follow Australian news. I listen to Australian radio and on podcasts. So I'm still very culturally aware of uh, what's happening there. Um, 
I suppose I've been following the Australian general election that's happening at the moment, and um, it has sort of brought up issues that I would have experienced when I was back in Australia in 2015, uh, which is notionally really uh, the cost of living um, and how, as a society, uh, it's become quite an unfair one in many respects because it's so hard to get your foot on the property ladder there. Uh, I was writing an article for uh, I write a column in the Irish Independent. And I was writing an article about it um, this week, uh, and they say that of those born uh, from 1990 onwards, uh, that it's only about a 40 to 50 percent chance that they'll have a property of their own by the time they hit 40, which is compared to the generation before, which was a 72 percent chance mm. of having a house. So, it's becoming a society where it's uh, ver- there's long-term renters. It's very hard to get uh, a bit of safety. Uh, and have your own place and you know they they call it the Australian dream the Australian dream is owning your own house and it's slipping out of grass for people and I remember being there in 2015 and I was working on a building site as an unskilled labourer I I, I couldn't get some I couldn't get work in in media and um, you know I I did what lots of Irish people did I took I took a job on construction um, but I realised that if I wanted to try and be a writer uh, I couldn't afford to live in that city uh, I couldn't afford to to, to write and uh, to uh, to pay rent and everything else. So I came back to Ireland where uh, things were not so bad, you know. Um, Australia is a great place, but there are issues. I mean, it has to tackle climate change. Uh, that's a that's a big issue. It's it's also you know one of the world's biggest suppliers of coal that has to change um so it's a society i think in transition and this election that's happening as we speak is probably um a big deciding uh factor in the next 10 years of australian life mm-hmm. there's there's so much you're talking about there that uh, draws parallels for me anyway to ireland I, I don't know the specific stats but they're not dissimilar in terms of the trend in demographics between one generation to the next and home ownership in particular. And, you know, obviously the Irish government have made uh, some significant inroads in relation to climate policy, but at the same time, we're building data centers left, right and center. And I think sometimes we don't see our own maybe complicity in in the bigger mess so much. But, um, you know, just comparing the two countries in that regard and social or economic policy it just strikes me that increasingly the problems that many of us are facing are, are global by nature, perhaps, you know, in terms of ideology or, you know, we talk about the Australian dream. We don't necessarily use the terminology, the Irish dream, but, you know, it's it's that vision for life and how we would like life to be for us and our loved ones and the decency, the social contract, as some people might call it. Mm, uh, who who <laughs> can't think of who termed that? Crusoe or Clu- um, yes, there was a famous book called The Social Contract. Um, it's not Cocteau, but anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's um, it's a funny world at the moment, you know. It's we, I suppose, um, the war in Ukraine really made us realise how globally connected we are. You know the the um, the food shortages that we're hearing about now uh, that there are, that are a knock-on effect of of the crops not getting harvested in in, in Ukraine, yeah. and, which will affect Africa, um, African nations. It's it's you know sometimes um, the world is complex, uh, but it's always been that way. You know, I think people think that the past was a simpler time. Uh, it wasn't. It was 
it was always just as difficult. Um, it's yeah. just now we're so connected and we know what's happening in the rest of the world. Um, and, uh, you know, we are talking and there is a war in Europe uh, and there's millions of refugees fleeing that war. Um, that's a fact that is happening in 2022. Yeah, you're not wrong there. You know, we're talking about 13 million, I think I read yesterday, it's one of the latest figures, 13 million displaced and about 6 million refugees out of Ukraine, straight all around Europe and 30,000 here in Ireland so far. And just to hear where I am in rural County Clare, over 1,000, actually significantly over 1,000 uh, Ukrainian refugees in the town of Listun Varna. It's a population around 800 and there were already 200 asylum seekers there. And there are now a thousand Ukrainians on top of that. So wow. it's like the the influence of global turbulence are, is coming to bear in, in all corners. But I, I like that historical lens, John, where, you know, I was reading about the Chinese warship doing a kind of maneuver around the west coast of Australia the other day. And you know, previous to that, we've the the, the, Australia, the American warship and before that, the British warship. And, you know, in the past, we had uh, Portuguese, Spanish, French, you know, th- suppose that comes down to an interest. I know is one of yours is colonialism. And, mm. you know, effectively, there's power struggles at play at all times. And I suppose resources is is often a big part of that, isn't it? Yeah, I think um colonialism nowadays it's not getting in your Nina, Pita and Santa Maria and sailing to the Americas uh, or Pizarro or or, or um, you know Cortez it's um, it can be economic uh, and it can be uh, soft power and it can be hard power and influence in a nation yeah it's 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 an interesting prospect because we are seeing an America that seems to be struggling and a China that is growing and uh, there are world there are world powers uh, emerging and some are uh, retreating and then I was listening to the radio yesterday and they were talking about you know the fact that we have dictators uh, still in the world and still raging wars uh, so colonialism to my mind never really left it just changed its form yeah uh, i think yeah. you know i'm no expert on it i i wrote a book about british colonialism but um yeah i think that there there are new forms of colonialism and um you don't need to send in an army to influence the politics in a country anymore you're not wrong there you can have an army of bots on twitter in forming elections and various mm-hmm. countries. And indeed, we saw here in our own country a debate over the National Maternity Hospital. And we had um, bots in Istanbul or Turkey in, uh, retweeting right, tweets on it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and we, you know, the question is who paid for the bots and so on and so forth. And it's it's a murky world. But going back to your own life, John, um, we'll come to your new book shortly. But I just want to get a sense of where you're at and you know, what's life like in the new house and are you still farming and what are your days looking like? Yeah, it's, um, you know, Rory, uh, you and I, when we talk, we have always very deep cut <laughs> talks <laughs> and we're going in. in, in, in I'm just, we're, I'm just we're warming following. you up. I'm warming yeah. you up gently, John. We're forming, we're forming our old pattern here, but 
No, I suppose, Rory, one of my greatest fears in life was to be homeless when I was a young person. Don't know why, it just was a, a fear. So getting the house was a really, um, it was a big, big dream come true. Uh, and uh, it, it felt earthy. So what have I been doing for the last while? Uh, I spent six months writing a book and then I... In January, I finished it and I've spent the last months uh, farming. Uh, I bought some sheep. Uh, I was delivering lambs, uh, working on the farm, delivering calves and um, not doing any book writing. And it actually was probably a great experience because, you know, I talked to different writers about this and uh, a lot of people talk about the notion of like a rested field. Uh, to, yeah, I keep a field fallow for a year yeah. and let it rest. And yeah, that experience was really good. And I, I um, it actually opened me up to a lot of new thinking. And um, I've been reading a lot of uh, like spiritual literature uh, from from different writers like Thomas Merton or Henry Nouwen, and becoming increasingly uh, interested in ecological theology and I think in a way that is because I'm on the land and I'm rooted in the land and and I am a spiritual person and I was trying to you know uncover what is there a is there a crossroads between spirituality and and the earth and and of course there is you know uh, mm-hmm. uh, and and there's vast literature on it and um it's been a really interesting few months and uh i suppose uh it was a time to unwind a little bit and um get back into the real world and i found it uh to be uh really beneficial and um you know um as someone who who has had mental health difficulties in the past i have to look after myself and so you know actually uh, slowing down has been a really important thing and i think in a sense that covid taught us all to slow down a little bit uh i know that the world is getting a bit busy again i know that you know, for example, people are back commuting to Dublin and back in offices. But I think that despite the tragedy of COVID and the loss of life, which was a terrible thing and we lost loved ones, but um, if we could take the lesson of slowing down from it, uh, I think that it would be an enormous benefit to us, you know. Uh, I don't know if that was your experience, but it certainly was mine. I would write uh, during the day and then I'd go and look at the sheep or the cattle and then I'd go for a run. And in a way, I was living a life that was so much more similar to my grandparents that your parish, your townland was your whole world, you know. Uh, and I remember, you know, one of the first trips back to Dublin um, for whatever reason it was, I don't remember now, but it seemed like an awful long way to go, you know, uh, something that I had done multiple times a week. It seemed like this enormous journey and uh, it made me realize that I had r- rooted myself, rerouted uh, into this little townland and and gotten used to it. Well, there's there's so much in that, John, and I'm, uh, you know, I was I was chatting to a local farmer recently and uh, I was talking about a trip to Dublin I'd made recently and, and like that saying how, what an, almost an ordeal it was. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, but he said to me, he said I was in Dublin once and I didn't think much of it, but I was just really struck by the fact that he said he was there once 
Yeah. And this is a man could be touching 60, like, and uh, I thought that was fantastic, to be honest. Yeah. And I suppose growing up, the ideal was always to go everywhere. And yeah. And I love that idea of knowing, knowing yourself first and knowing the, the, the parish or the surrounds that are around you. And if you, if you can't know your own place, then, you know, it's, it's. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a, you know, Rory, I'm someone who's traveled all over the world. Um, there's a few places I, I need to go to for work, but as I get older now, I'm 35. I um, I want to travel increasingly less. In uh, it's kind of it's um, yeah, it's kind of a funny thing, you know. I, I for a couple of years there, I was all over the world, uh, traveling every month uh, for work, and uh, now I I I am glad to be in one place for an extended period of time. And uh, I was on the Camino last year, and um, it was interesting, uh, very spiritual experience, very, very, uh, very powerful. But it wasn't until I came to Galicia where, where the Camino, Camino ends and uh, it's, they call themselves Celtic people. And uh, it felt like walking through home. And uh, I said to myself, you know, I think I'm going to go back home now and uh, really appreciate it. And uh, mm. it was weird. It was like going to another land, but coming to see yourself, meeting yourself on the walk yeah. and uh, meeting your own people. And I remember having a chat. My Spanish isn't brilliant, but my comprehension is good. And having a chat with um, the bus driver and uh, him saying to me, we're Celtic brothers. And, uh, Lovely. you know, yeah, it was, it was a really special experience and, and um, something that yeah traveling in the celtic world it was a nice experience mm, i hear a new book title coming on there <laughs> yeah maybe <laughs> the irony here the tra- it's going to be a travel book um yeah. no there's a you've mentioned spirituality a few times john and like i just can't always get this sense here you know that in another era or uh culture or place you you would have been a priest yeah oh yeah i mean the truth is rory i was um when i lived in canada in 2014 i i went through uh probably a year of thinking that i would be a priest and i was in a relationship and uh said it to to my partner but uh really um was very close to it but i found as i've you know and, and ultimately i i didn't enter seminary i i chose as my friend uh, who's a priest actually calls it the ministry of the word, which is writing. And uh, as I've gotten older, my spirituality has deepened. My faith has deepened. And, um, you know, I increasingly find um, great comfort in having a spiritual life, um, which is something that I wouldn't have had um, in my 20s. Uh, I wouldn't have engaged with it. I, maybe I went to mass on Christmas day or, you know, Easter, something like that in Australia, but um, it has grown and deepened. And in a sense, I think uh, discovering uh, a Clare man, John O'Donoghue, uh, really opened me up to Celtic spirituality and, um, and realizing that, you know, we have a deep spirit base in this country. You don't have to go to Tibet to get in contact with our own deep understanding of the world. Uh, and, you know, seeing as a farmer as well, seeing God in nature is a, is a beautiful thing. You know, I, I continually feel the cry of creation when you 
deliver a new lamb or there's a calf uh, comes into the world uh, or just seeing, um, you know, like the crescendo of grass. Uh, I was writing something. I was talking about the symphony of the symphony of nature and the crescendo of grass and the symbols of trees uh, symbols in the, in the musical sense. But um, I suppose it's why I did the Camino, you know, that's to be honest. Uh, I, I wanted to uh, experience um that world but I think ultimately you come to meet yourself on the Camino and I remember meeting a, a NASA uh, engineer and uh, on the walk and I said have you got your your message yet everybody talks about messages you know okay, and uh, yeah, yeah. she said no and I said uh, I said well I think actually you bring your answer with you and uh, the woman stopped walking and looked at me and she was like I never thought of it like that and I said, I said, well, I said, it only came to me. I said, but I think the answer's inside you. I said, the Camino is just a vehicle to, to allow you to think about it. But, but you have the answer already. And that's kind of what the Camino is all about. You meet people and, and you have these uh, exchanges. And, uh, and sometimes there's a, a little moment of epiphany. Mm, it's lovely. And, and speaking about the likes of John O'Donoghue and, you know, another man before him or around the same time as John Moriarty and oh yeah uh, you yeah. reference Celtic spirituality but at the heart of all of that was a more ecological resonance perhaps and you know going back to Australia with the indigenous people and you know ultimately indigenous people everywhere have earth-based spirituality mm. and perhaps something was cut off either lost or intentionally cut off along the way uh, that could perhaps be at the heart of so much of the dysfunction and disconnection that we experience economically, socially, culturally. Yeah. This is, this is where it's at. Yeah. I think, you know, you, you have the modern world is so hard and so taxing that people have to go like, this is the truth. People have to go on retreats from the modern world to get a bit of equilibrium in their life. So does that not raise the question of, well, what sort of a society is this that you have to get away from the society yeah. to yeah. to get back to yourself, you know, and yeah. you'll pay you'll pay lots of money to take a break and then go back and, you know, you've recharged yourself, you go back to be depleted again and then to go to do it again. And, you know, there was an interview I heard John O'Donoghue talking about and he said he had a friend in, in, in the UK and, and uh, she was totally stressed out, went and took two weeks by the sea and relaxed and, um, and was back to herself. But really, you know, isn't it a shame that society is like that, that we have to, we have to take these retreats from it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's getting increasingly harder for people, you know, people are holding out on these front lines and, and, um, some people never get the chance to have the break because maybe they don't have the money to go to the seaside um, or to go to a yoga retreat or uh, a meditation, you know, thing. They, they don't have that opportunity. It's not part of their life and they have to just make do with it. And I, I think, you know, um, one of my reasons in coming back to, to Longford was that it was, um, I knew this world and it was a quiet world and, uh, that even though everything has to be worked for and everything has to be earned and, and I'm no different to anyone else, uh, but that maybe there was a little bit of uh, peace in this world that I wasn't finding in the cities of the world. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a, my sense of cities. Obviously, you've touched on busyness, but um, I mean, they, they many are many ways are the hotbeds of culture and ideas and that 
I think is to be celebrated and I love it. Um, but they're also kind of hotbeds of consumption and capitalism and sort of dog eat dog mentality. Uh, now, I'm not saying that in rural Ireland, we <laughs> everything's all <laughs> rosy and, and uh, everybody's all sort of morally superior or cleaner. Um, but I suppose having that spaciousness around you and in your own head, you can be less perhaps contaminated by whatever toxicity might be in the culture. Um, although the Internet can challenge that as well, in that you have mm. the smartphone going into the 10 year old's bedroom now. So, yeah, I suppose where this is bringing me is to think about the notion of simplicity and perhaps, you know, when we talk about world religions, that that seems to be at the heart of so many of them is to simplify, simplify, simplify. But the, the race at the moment is complexity. It's it's add more strings to your bow, not less. Yeah, you know, I, I suppose, Rory, I'm, I'm at a stage now where I'm not interested in intensive things. Um, I'm interested in slow things. And um, maybe it was maybe it was going on the river with the book um, slowing down. We were going at about maybe two or three miles an hour in a canoe. And uh, I started to read a lot of Lao Tzu at the time. And uh, he talks a lot about rivers and uh, the Chinese philosopher. And he um, he talks about the notion of a river meeting a big rock and uh, that the river is a gentle force and will go will flow around the rock and eventually after maybe a thousand years will flow through the rock but everything is everything is achieved and um i think about that notion a lot um that you know on the farm let's say we have a busy day with sheep they have to be dosed or sheared or whatever it is or moved and uh i just say i'll be a river now meeting the rock and i'll go slowly and uh in going slowly, the job is done and it's done at a camera pace as opposed to trying to rush through it and ultimately not getting the job done properly. And mm. um, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, slowing down, slowing down is probably what we need to do um, uh, in, in this world. And, uh, mm. you know, yeah, that, that we can be the river, you know, we can be the river. Mm. Well put. I love that. Um, you know, bringing Lao Tzu to uh, ancient Chinese philosophy into the rivers of Longford. And um, <laughs> yeah, and why not? You know, and, and the chances are we had our own similar understanding of all of that, but we perhaps didn't have the same written culture that or for whatever reason, we don't have those written texts that speak in that same way. But perhaps it's a positive of, of globalization to an extent where we do have greater access to see the, the commonality. Yeah. This is this is the wonderful thing about the internet and being able to order books uh, that you can read all this stuff, you know, and uh, and take it in and and watch a documentary on it. So um, you know, that's the powerful <laughs> that's the powerful thing about the modern world that ideas are so accessible and can be shared. And I think that's where we see the positives of technology and the positives of the modern world. I know we were saying that cities are, uh, you know, tough places, but, um, you know, we, we, we are living at the point of peak technology. There's never been, we've never been as advanced. And similarly, we've, we're living at peak ecological biodiversity because uh, the further on we go, the lesser that becomes. So we're living in a good time, even though it might not seem it. 
Yeah, yeah, it, it it certainly doesn't seem it a lot of the time, particularly from a, you know, political or, or you know, back to ecology. But on the other hand, we are making some inroads in, in many areas. And like, as, as, as you said, like, you know, looking back historically, what time on earth was this kind of rosy picture? There were always sort of marauding tribes, you know, even go back to our Celtic brothers in Spain, there were those lads who take the head off you wherever you were. Yeah, well, that's it. And I was listening to uh, an interview with um, uh, a writer the other day, a military historian who was talking about evolution and how, you know, when we when first man developed, we, we were coming from the primate culture and the primate culture has always been strife. And uh, there's he was talking in particular about chimpanzees and how um, chimpanzees have um, have bands of 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 communities, uh, but there's no man's lands in between different communities, and if you stray into one, you could get killed. And uh, we seem to have brought that <laughs> strife with us. The, you know, there's a history of war as our species. Uh, there's always been there's always been conflict. This is what he was saying, and you know, I'd never thought of it before. So it was an interesting uh, interesting concept that conflict has been with us for for a long time. Yeah. And I suppose then, therefore, like obviously conflict are so, so often resource based, but they're also, you know, it's often said that conflict begins and ends in the hearts and minds of men or women, but often men. And, you know, the opposite of that is peace and uh, sort of a peaceful heart. And I want to go back to the river and into the boat and the canoe. And, and I have this real sense of a peaceful voyage. Can you, can you talk to me about the voyage and, and how yeah. it's in the book? So, so I was in America and uh, talking to migrant farm workers and uh, I came back and the lockdown started. I was back probably a week and um, I hadn't really heard anything because I'd been on the road for about a month and uh, hadn't been following news. So I didn't really know anything about the pandemic. But as it happened, I found myself in Longford and my friend Peter Gagan, uh, a journalist, was home from uh, Scotland. And uh, I had this idea to go on the c- canoe down the Camlin. See, the story was I had nearly drowned on Sydney Harbour 10 years before, and I had made this promise to myself that one day I'd make a little trip down the Camlin in, in thanks for my life being spared. And uh, it just seemed like the perfect time. And I suggested it to Peter. And Peter said, why not? You know, so it was this two day trip down our, our Ganges, uh, down this small river. And, uh, you know, Rory, I'm probably someone that's traveled all their life, but it was one of the most amazing trips I've ever been on. There was so much wildlife, uh, look in the water. There was fish swimming around you, swans, herons, kingfishers, mayfly. I seen mayfly for the first, I'd never seen mayfly in my life. And there they were on the river quietly you know going about their existence and they only live for a day or so and uh you know the trout were jumping to catch them it was this amazing experience and um it was a joyful experience and i suppose for me um i had been carrying a lot of the wounds from the past from the seven years and um and the years prior to it and i said to myself that i'm going to go down the river And by the time we get to Clondra, which is where the Camelon meets the Shannon, I'm going to leave my problems on this river. And I had this image of the problems flowing out into the Shannon, all the way down to Limerick and then flowing out into the Atlantic. 
And um, the amazing thing was, it was this cathartic trip and it was this cathartic experience and it, it, it did work. And I sometimes think that we need grand gestures in life. I was talking to a friend recently who quit smoking and I said, what did you do to market? And he said, I smashed every ashtray in the house. And um, my, my marker was to go down that river to say goodbye. Uh, you know, I realized I'd been, when I was on the river, I realized I'd been thinking about stuff for seven to 10 years, you know? It's a long time to be thinking about things. Uh, mm-hmm. And eventually I let them go. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was powerful. When you said thinking about stuff, uh, I get a, a real sense of rumination, you know? that Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was total rumination. And, you know, rumination, we don't talk about it enough in, uh, in the media. Like, we all ruminate, but when rumination... Rumination can be crippling. And I think rumination is, you know, it's a bedfellow of, anx- of anxiety and depression. But there are people who are prisoners to their thoughts. And uh, mm-hmm. it can be very hard. And I'm someone who was one of those, you know, it can be very hard to, to dispel those thoughts and see them for what they just are. A thought that comes in, mm-hmm. stays there for a moment and then goes again. But if you don't have yeah. the tools to deal with them, they can be crippling. Yeah, and they're they're so often uh, not 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 only of course, but so often connected to sort of aspects of guilt or or shame or regret and yeah. things that happen to us. And uh, I suppose then you know implicit in rumination is a de- an element of inactivity or uh, not necessarily catalyzing them towards transforming the thoughts into anything constructive other than this horrific terrible car going around a terrible roundabout at yeah. slow terrible speed yeah and you know rory for me i've wrote three memoirs and there isn't any more but um they're done now but that was my way of dispelling the past and dealing not not just dispelling it but actually examining it analyzing it mm. processing it and then letting it go and mm. it took it took three books to really make sense of 10 years of living and um, mm-hmm. th- those books were, they were books that were about loss and the loss of love and about depression and sadness. But ultimately, with the stream of everything, I realized as I was writing it, it was a book about love and happiness. And, uh, you know, I suppose I finished by talking about um, my wife and uh, the love that she has brought into my life. And I realized that that the journey had a happy ending. And uh, I think for people who can know, I think it's, it serves as a good lesson for people to know that life works out. And I was doing a talk for a group of uh, secondary school girls recently. And, um, you know, they asked me, I was telling them my life story. And then they said, what happened with the, gir- with the girlfriend? I said, I'm married, to- I'm married to her. And that was the bit they loved the most because they said, you know, it, it showed them that love has a way to conquer everything. Mm. And, you know, your, your podcast is called Love and Courage. It's, it's, mm. It really can be a discounted thing because love can move mountains, really, literally and figuratively. Yeah. And that, that's, you know, if, it, if there isn't love on the agenda, then what are we, what are we at? Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd actually, it's, it's a word that you don't really hear in common parlance. Like it's not, uh, you know, if we do a Google news search for love in the media today, there's not going to be much about it other than sort of trivial 
stuff or celebrity, whatever. Yeah. Um, but it's amazing, you know, to imagine perhaps a new political discourse that spoke to the common values of humanity. Now, I, I think increasingly politicians maybe do go there and perhaps there's an element of the um, the conditioning of masculinity and our political system being very much a male orientated one and thankfully changing, but slowly. Mm-hmm. And perhaps with that change might come a, an opening up of the heart. And, you know, the reality is that many or most or certainly a lot of men have been conditioned from a very young age to not talk about love as something important in in our worlds. We're there to conquer. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, um, Ocean Vong, uh, he's a Vietnamese-American poet. Um, he has a new, he's a new po- poetry collection out called uh, um, Time is a Mother, but he has a poem in it about that deals with toxic masculinity. And he's talking about even the language we use in the business world. You slayed that, you you dominated him, you killed him. Killed it, you know? yeah. yeah. Yeah, you killed it. All these all these very aggressive yeah. terms. And and you're right, Rory, people don't talk about love. And um, I know I have a few friends and uh, male friends and they would have told me they loved me. And it took me a long time to be able to say that back to say, well, I love you too, you know, and, uh, and that's going against um, the grain of, you know, being a farmer's son for, and coming from a farming family for generations that you don't talk about those things. And, you know, I, I recently interviewed my mother and she was telling me about her father uh, giving her a, a penny when she was a little girl. And that was that generation's way of saying, I love you and you're doing well, you know? Um, yeah. We showed yeah. it in different ways. Yeah. Still, of course, was love. But yeah. I think I think it's, um, you know, building modern men, they have to be uh, capable of, of dealing with that notion and that power because um, it's a very lonely world if you don't have love in your life. Uh, and, 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 you know, love takes many forms, but uh, it's a very lonely world if, if it isn't there. And, uh, and maybe, maybe that's what leads to um, these acts of violence that we see. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking of Buffalo in New York the other day, um, the, the shooting, uh, the racist attack and the shooting there. And there was a man who was influenced by the New Zealand attack um, and men with a lack of love in their life, looking to an online community to find uh, to find it, and then it being contorted into an aggressive thing. Mm. Yeah, it, it's it's often a way with radicalization and any form of sort of supremacy, whether it be Islamic fundamentalism or white supremacy, that they're young young men in search of belonging, and it's the same in in gang culture as well. Mm-hmm. You know that. Yeah. Um, if we can bring people into the village and, and give them a sense of belonging and purpose. And I think that has to start with uh, work with young people, because I suppose also you see a lot of the uh, narrative around young people being that they're wild and they're untamed and they're, they're wrecking the place and this, that and the other. But, you know, it's our duty as, uh, you know, um, the adults in the society to create and facilitate the spaces as you are involved in there with that talk with the teenagers, you know, um, I think that's so, so important to build that intergenerational dialogue where, you know, cause I'm sure you got as much or more out of that as you gave. With that, with yeah. That you know, I actually uh, do a lot of motivational speaking and um, I don't advertise it. I never 
seek it out, but it's always, it has found me since the cow book came out. And, uh, you know, I do a talk probably once a month and, um, it's, it's, uh, there's a strength in being open, uh, you know, John O'Donoghue's talked about uh, a beauty coming from woundedness, uh, but I think there's also a beauty that comes from being open. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was funny talking to the girls. Uh, I said to them, I don't look young, do I? And they said, no. <laughs> and I, was, I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm not a young fella anymore. But, but I, but I want, uh, that wasn't the mission. I wanted them to, I wanted them to remember that, um, that uh, even when things are bad, that there's always a light to hold on to. And, uh, you know, I said to them, you're going out into the world now. And I said, maybe you'll never remember this talk. I said, but if you can take away one thing, and I got them to do this little exercise, and I do it with most secondary school kids I do talks with. I get them to close their eyes and just be calm for a moment and think about the problem they're worrying about, whether it's the leaving cert or the junior cert, and then to... um, to think about all the people that love them in their life, their parents or their guardians, their friends, mm-hmm. their cousins, uh, and, and their teachers. And, um, and I do say, look at all the people in your mind who want the best for you. So really the problem isn't going to be that hard, you know? And, uh, if we could all do that little exercise now and again, I think we'd be able to look after ourselves a little bit more, you know, cause all we ultimately want for each other is the best, the best outcome for someone, you know, whether they're, doing their leaving search or they're taking their driving lessons. We want them to have a positive outcome to feel uh, that they're wanted and needed in life. Yeah. Um, I, I find it, <laughs> it's, it's uh, interesting what I'm going to say to you now, but uh, part of me disagrees with you. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't at all, to be honest. I, I think, yes, Yes, that's true. Except elements of that culture that we referred to before of the slay, the slaying, mm. the, the dominating, the crushing, the killing it. Um, it's very much the hunter gatherer. Um, I'm going out into the jungle today. I'm going to take the head of somebody because if I don't, you know, I, my world is under threat, like that highly competitive world. So I think it's an entirely different world than the one you're talking about. No, it is. Uh, no, and I agree yeah. with you. I agree with yeah. you. What, what I suppose, Roy, what I was saying is that's what I want when yeah, I do no, the talks. I, I, people, I know yeah. what you're saying. I yeah. suppose I'm, I'm... But you're just, right. There is that whole other uh, aggressive world. And, uh, you know, we need an ego to be in the world, first of all. Like, mm. y- y- you need an ego, a, a healthy ego to mm. get outside the door, you know. But... Uh, yeah, that 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 aggressive thing. That's um, that's where it gets tricky, you know. Well, okay, just touch on that now because, like, my experience of just one book, for instance, or but multiple projects and things that you know have to build or get out into the world. It it sort of does require some element of that healthy ego stuff to push yourself forward or propel yourself and. You know, if at some point you realize that, well, if I don't do it, nobody's coming here to do it mm. for me, you know? Yeah. yeah. And um, how do you navigate that now, John? Or have you got a, a kind of a stride that you know how to, you know, the drill and the dance? Or do you still have to kind of get into what is often known as the the hustle? Uh, yeah, I mean, I still hustle. Uh, I, I... I'm like anyone else. I want uh, certain, <laughs> want to do certain things in life, and uh, you have to put yourself out there to do them. Whether it's writing a book or writing a play or whatever it is, and um, I think I try when I do those things to back myself, and that 
you know, the worst that anyone can say to you in relation to your, your creative work is no. But then they're not going to think any more about it. They're not going to think about it in two weeks and go, I'm really glad I said no to that guy. You know, it, they're, they're just going to go go about their life. So you have to develop a, a thick skin and say, well, mm. actually, I've, I've published this book. Uh, it didn't sell or it didn't, it didn't work or I made a movie and it didn't work the way I wanted it to work. Mm. But, um, you know, I'm going to, I failed, but I'll fail again and fail better and I'll start again and do something new and backing yourself. And I think that's what I was talking about with the, with the school kids is that you have to have the ego to get ahead in life, but you also need to have the bit of self-love to be able to say it worked or it didn't work and to know that you pick yourself up again and, and try again. And, you know, um, I think that we go through loads of phases in our life, uh, and maybe I'm in a reflective space at the moment, but um, I still have to uh, get out there and, uh, and and talk to people, you know. And you need a healthy ego to do that. And if you don't have a healthy ego, you won't be able to interact with people on the street on a simple level. But but we have to manage the ego so that it go it, it maintains in a healthy ego that it doesn't go into this aggressive kill slay thing because that's where it can be hurtful, you know. Yeah, and going back to Lao Tzu, the um, you know the Tao of knowing when to to push forward and when to pull back. And so, mm. if you're in a reflective phase today, you know maybe next month or next year you're you're back on the horse and you're riding around northern Spain writing your next book or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I'm uh, I'm I've no doubt we'll end up having a, a part three at some stage. <laughs> so yes, go for the trilogy yeah, yeah. since you're yes. you're the trilogy the trilogy king but i've really enjoyed the the chat john and um look forward to uh to to, to following what's next for you and no doubt many more adventures to come whether to be local or global or internal or wherever they end up yeah gotta keep moving forward good man thanks again thanks rory Hello, Ruri here again. A huge thanks to John for that really rich conversation and for sharing so many great insights and stories. Be sure to check out his books and keep an eye out for his newspaper columns and other great work. If you know others who might like to hear this episode, please do send them a link and mention it on social media if you feel so inclined. You can also help the podcast reach more people by subscribing in your podcast app. You'll get updates on new episodes and also ratings and reviews are all appreciated. And a huge thanks to existing podcast patrons for chipping in. And if you'd like to chip in, you can go over to loveandcourage.org, even if it's a once-off small chip in uh, or a monthly basis, that all is appreciated. It helps the podcast grow and reach new people, helps me promote it to new listeners all around the world. And if you're new to the podcast, be sure to check out the archive. Lots of great stuff in there. And you might enjoy my book if you haven't come across it yet. It's called Hitching for Hope. Huge thanks to everyone for listening to our being part of the Love and Courage community. Thanks again for all your love and support. Until next time.